0: I hate to interrupt your conversations, folks, but it is time for us to get, get back back to it. Uh, before we get going, I just want to let everybody know, I think you know that SACFA is having a birthday this year, um, and in honour of that, there's this special publication that has been put together, and these are available for $5 if you're interested. There's a bunch up here on the front table, um, and they're, they're fabulous little, little keepsakes, so, so do come and check those out uh, when we're all done today. Hi, I'm asked to remind you that uh, all upcoming sessions are listed on SACPA's website, which is SACPA.ca. And the sessions can also be heard in audio and as a podcast from that website. So you can download it to your iPod and take it with you for your run. Uh, Listen to all the great topics again. If you have ideas for other topics or any other suggestions for SACPA, there is a suggestion box in the lobby for your ideas and comments. Um, we're going to get going with the Q&A. I'm going to restate the topic here, which is drug addiction, crime, and the role of the police service in harm reduction. Uh, Rob, Rob has a lot going on in his world, as you all know, but I will ask that we try to keep to the topic at hand. Um, uh, I'll invite you to keep your questions um, brief. If you could state your name first, um, we have one person who has asked for permission to give a short preamble, and that is Larry. If your name is not Larry, you, 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 you may ask your question as concisely as you possibly can. Um, the microphone is right over here. Anything else I need to say? I think that's it. We'll welcome Rob back up.
1: Thank you very much. That was a great presentation, Rob. I, I have been given permission for a 20-second preamble, so Tad's not going to tackle me in <laughs> at the mic. Um, I have I loved your stories about connecting dots in your head, and I'd like to throw a couple more dots in there and, and leave the thought with you. I've received the honour and the privilege of, of an invitation to speak to a standing committee on finance in Ottawa next week on banking and financial abuse me. Part of my topic includes some early research findings that show that, the, uh, that in most years in Canada, economic and financial abuse of Canadians by high-level economic crime does as much or more harm to the country than the cost of all other crimes that you deal with combined, all the robberies, all the accidents, muggings, drug offences. I think we're in the neighbourhood of 50 to 70 billion a year for all crime in Canada depending on whose measurement we use um, I can find that in any given year in the financial industry so I hope to share with the people in Ottawa that dot connection that connection between the upper level and the poverty the, the prosperity at the upper level and the poverty at the bottom and the desperation so um, it's it's causing a pandemic of hopelessness at the bottom and I think you get to clean up on that hopelessness every day and that's not quite what you're Uh, job is supposed to be. So I would end there by saying I'd love to hear your comments or thoughts or any message you might like me to carry to Ottawa and say this is what it feels like on the street.
2: Thank you very much for your talk. Thank you. Great question. Uh, You touched on something very interesting and I'm glad you mentioned it is about the the high-end white-collar crime that we'll refer to it too. And that's the, I'll call it the sickening part, is we deal with the street level where the damage is done. And that's where, if there's a message I would want taken to any level of government, would be that when we deal with organized crime, that's where we need to get tough. Sentencing uh, the addict, the, the, the person that's, on, that, that's gone through the addiction and is having the interaction with police Let's deal with their addiction. But when we have the organized crime elements that are manufacturing, importing, distributing the drugs and above them into the economic crime, and like you said, they're living in a very privileged lifestyle through dirty money. That's where our governments need to, uh, provincially and federally, we need to get really tough on that. And it's the same story in the states. I'm great friends with a number of officers in the United States that are deputy sheriffs, sheriffs, chiefs. And the same thing there, it's it's almost like an elitist crime. and There's very little punishment for it. So that would be a, a, that our government be alive to the fact that those are criminals. And it's, their crime is actually causing the disparity we're seeing on the street, which leads to the crimes that we're feeling when your camera gets stolen, when your cigarette lighter gets stolen, when your iPad gets stolen. So that, I would ask that, that they recognize organized crime for what it is. It's not sexy. It's not what you see on TV. They are criminals, and they are exploiting our society uh, so that people on the street level are feeling it and in our neighborhoods are feeling it.
3: Yeah. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Thank you for a frank presentation. That was appreciated. It's uh, quite concerning that you feel that of the calls that you have to address, you're not equipped to do so. And I recognize that you're a law enforcer, you're not a lawmaker. Um, But I'd like to ask your views on uh, tough crime and on the use, perhaps tough crime is the wrong term, but on the use of guns and tasers, to prevent crime, and do you feel that your officers should be talking to uh, suspects first to apprehend them? Or or why do they shoot to kill? And is there any what is the conventional thinking on this? What do you feel within the police force how you should be handling this?
2: Uh, thank you for the question uh, so uh, a couple of things and I'm not just saying this because I'm in Lethbridge I'm, I'm uh, as I said at the start of my talk I'm a journeyman and I am extremely proud of the men and women in this police service that it's topical now it really hit the presses over the last two years because of incidents in the Toronto area and in the US About the police need to de-escalate I am very proud of the Lethbridge Police Service that for over a decade they've been teaching de-escalation here uh, it is amazing to me and very refreshing having come from Ontario that our officers will take the time to talk. Uh, we do not go to weapons. Uh, we introduced the shotgun repurposed with a bean bag so that we had one extra lethal, less lethal tool to deal with people. Uh, so I'm extremely proud that we train and have trained for a number of years to de-escalate situations in Lethbridge and, and other services in Alberta are doing the same but here specifically because they get to see it daily uh, that we do not ramp things up. We do not escalate the fight. We are cognizant to de-escalate it and I'm proud of our officers for that. With respect to the comment of shoot to kill, we don't shoot to kill. The way we are trained in in all the police agencies I've worked is we aim for center mass. And the reality is is under stress your fine motor skills deteriorate. And that when you're under stress as those fine motor skills deteriorate and if you are in that life and death situation or have to protect the life of another The the concept of Hollywood where you're going to shoot the gun out of their hand or the knife out of their hand is not reality. In a high-stress situation, you get psyche-tacky, your tunnel vision. Everything goes into a unique sense. uh, your, Your senses slow down, essentially. And so we are trained to aim at center mass, which is here. Unfortunately, that's where most of the critical organs are. So we do not train to kill. We do not shoot to kill. We shoot at center mass. But that is only in the situation where it's life and death uh, for the officer or for the public. But again, I cannot stress, I am so proud of this police agency because how we measure success in cadet training is how they de-escalate situations. We do not measure success on how you ramp it up to the next level so that we need a gun, then a rifle, then a tank. We train so that we de-escalate first and we exhaust all of those avenues and again I'm accept- I'm extremely proud of the men and women here and I'm extremely proud that how we introduced the repurposed shotgun with that beanbag. bag uh, where we found it really valuable is with people with mental health issues because you can't rationalize with them and quite often they're armed with a knife or with some type of weapon where they're endangering a member of the public so our options are to use lethal force if had we not had that that shotgun with the beanbag, having that extra less lethal tool at our disposal we are able to Take the person into care and they're gonna have a nasty bruise. But at least they're gonna live and we can get them to the hospital where they can be dealt with by the mental health professionals that are trained to deal with them. So thank you for the question. And, and again, we don't train to kill, we, we train to de-escalate, and, and we're very proud of the fact that we use less lethal tools.
0: Hi, my name is Denise Fast. I'm currently an addictions counseling student at the U of L. Um, so as a future addictions counselor, it is heartwarming for me to hear that law enforcement is taking this approach with addicts in the, in the community. Um, you had talked a little bit about a safe consumption site um, coming to Lethbridge um, as part of the wraparound um, help for the addict. My question is, do you foresee Lethbridge um, getting a medical detox center?
2: Um, in the future, there are discussions going on about that. In a perfect world, the more services you have, the better. And you'll get that you're 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 in the field. Uh, so, in my opinion, the more services we can have that allow us the opportunity to help the person address the addiction, have that dog, the bounty hunter talk, and get them on the path to wellness, all the better. You know, if that, so that means a medically supervised detox, if that means a medically supervised intox, on top of a Safe consumption site, you know, what we are doing with catch and release does not work. So the more services like that we have at our disposal, all the better. Because if we can address that root addiction and get that person on the path of wellness, then we will address the the peripheral crimes that are feeding the addiction.
4: Hi, I'm Ken Sears. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased, I can't tell you how pleased I am to see that at least... Well, across the country, police forces are now becoming more and more accepting and invested in the concept of harm reduction. Um, However, you talk a bit, and you you were quite, you you were talking about how the various uh, organizations and groups within Lethbridge are coming together to provide support for the addicts, to provide support for people who want to clean up. Now, is that really happening? Because and I, 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 I had I known you were going to be here today, I would have researched. Just because, so I'm, I'm working from memory. You'll have to forgive me. There are four basic um, pillars on which a harm reduction strategy rests. One of which is safe consumption sites. The other one is the production or the provision of therapies of if you know uh, if, if for people who are willing to enter into those things. Um, the the third one is basically trying to remove some of the social forces, which includes things like housing. Um, but it's not really happening here. My understanding hold, is there have on. been... Hold on, okay, is, is the question... The question is coming, ma'am, okay? I have to give kay. some background here. Now, as my, my understanding, there have been seven different sites proposed in the city of Lethbridge for a safe consumption site. The city's on board, the province is on board, the feds are shut to have, have rejected every last one of them. That's my question one. Is that really the case or are you aware of that? How do you get the various uh, stakeholders together to try and get some action on this, a unified action, and a, you actually get some movement instead of just talking about how somewhere in the future this is going to get better?
2: So we, we are part of a group in, in the city here that is working towards harm reduction and sitting there. Are we in the perfect model, like the Prince Albert hub? No, but at least we're moving that direction. So uh, to answer your first question, is that really happening? We're moving that direction, it's not perfect. And I, and I see just my observation is that we see a lot, I see a lot of overlap or where there should be some overlap, there is none. But at least we're moving that direction and everybody's recognizing that. So that's a work in progress. With respect to the, uh, the site of a facility, uh, I feel your frustration uh, because it's... I don't know... I, I'm not... Uh, Inspector uh, Tom Ascroft from our police service sits on that committee on behalf of the police service. And what I understand, and I don't know which level of government, but it's their, their rules that it has to be so many meters away from a liquor store, and it has to be so many meters away from a licensed bar, and it can't be near this, and it can't be, well, when you look at all the, the restrictions, it wipes out good chunks of the city. You know, so if we're gonna put it out in the middle of nowhere, there's no point in building it. So my understanding, and I don't know which level of government, but it's these rules that are, are causing the, the issues is that it has to fall within all these certain parameters that just aren't realistic. Thanks.
5: Thank you for your speech, uh, uh, Chief Davis. My name is Frank J. Toth. I appreciate your half a page article in the newspaper a short while ago. Uh, In your total speech, though, you never, never mentioned what sh- about the crooks, the murders that are supplying the goods for these people with the tremendous volume of increasing uh, deaths. It's costing every taxpayer an un- unknown amount of money. Eventually, the provincial, you, you know, the province through an couple of hundred million dollars now for all these. What do you think of a couple of years ago, the ex-Police uh, Chief of Winnipeg retired, became a politician in parliament, and he suggested that the country build six to 10 hospital type of buildings away from Far enough from humanity, and put these people in, and so they nobody else can touch them or feed them. In the jails, we know that the the, some of the guards are supplying it to them. What do you think that idea that was proposed a few years ago?
2: So, so just so I'm clear, you're talking about the dealers, like the people that are supplying the drugs. How should we treat them? They're
5: killers. If they're selling for poison it'd be the same thing they're not they're not being charged a all there's nothing uh, you know that uh, they're going to pay for
2: we were having this discussion over the meal and it, and it speaks to my point at the yes. first question is i think that's where the focus needs to be is on their organized crime let's call it what it is the people that are doing the distribution the production the importing it they're organized crime it's not one person trying to make a buck it is organized crime and that's where I think our focus needs to be. We have organized crime legislation in this country, but we don't use it to the full effect of what it should be. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because the the crowns are reluctant, because to do a prosecution as an organized criminal group is quite an undertaking. So I don't know if it's a reluctance on part on the part of the judiciary. Uh, but in my opinion, that's where we need to focus. The ones that are doing the the, the importing, the trafficking, the production, and that are the organized crime. Those are the people that I agree with you. They need to go away somewhere. You know, throw away the key. Because they're, what, what my experience has been is at that level, they're not users. Quite often they don't drink. They don't use the drugs. They're business people. Their commodities is illegal. But they don't, and, they're, and I spoke to it earlier, they're living a pretty privileged lifestyle mm-hmm. as organized crime. And, organi- and, and I tell you, I get frustrated with some of the TV series that romanticize the organized crime element. There's nothing romantic about it. You're right. They're supplying stuff that's killing people. Killers. And and that's where they need to be dealt with.
1: (coughs) Terry Shellington is my name. Uh, Thank you for being here and uh, for a really good uh, informal presentation. I'd like to ask a a non-drug-related question, and that is around carding. It's become a very controversial aspect of policing uh, in many places in Canada and the U.S. I'm curious about whether carding happens in Lethbridge, I have the impression that it does. And uh, what happens with the information that's collected and is it really part of uh, making the city safer and less less crime afflicted?
2: So, to understand the carding debate in the Canadian context, it was a Toronto-centric issue that became popular across the country. And having come from Ontario, I can tell you, it really came out of the Toronto area it then was sort of assumed that all police services are using carding in the same way and that's not reality but i can tell you here in the province of alberta as the alberta association chiefs of police we have committed to work with the provincial government to develop a framework in how we will do we call them street checks and so we're working with the provincial government to to work out a framework on how that will unfold so that we're respecting people's rights but at the same time gathering information uh, for us people always ask well do you really need it Yes, uh, it comes in valuable, and i 'll just give a real simple example that if we have an industrial park and it 's getting hit for b and es and we know those b and es are happening between two and four, and we have an officer patrolling there and there 's somebody walking in the industrial park between two and four in the morning where really there shouldn 't be any foot traffic, it makes sense to stop and talk to that person because they very well may be doing the b and es breaking enters sorry b and cops are bad for using short short. Sure short terms <clears throat> so that's where the value of the street check or carding if you will comes in where you're seeing it move in ontario is they're wanting to identify and it boiled down to race the allegation was that the police services were disproportionately targeting certain races so in ontario they've moved that there's a number of steps they have to follow they have to identify the race of the person uh, we're not there yet in alberta but we're working with the soul gen to come up with a framework that will be respectful uh, but as far as the value yes there is value in it I think the bigger issue is the retention piece. How long do you hang on to that? So again, we're working with the Solicitor General to come up with what's reasonable. Hanging on to it for 30 years, not reasonable. But there, there, there has to be a time frame that is reasonable. So it's a work in progress.
5: My name is Pano, Pano Karkanis. I thank you very much, Chief Davis, for your presentation. Uh, next year, we are going to have uh, legalizing of marijuana. So just briefly, in your opinion, what's, what are the, co- the, the, the pros and cons of
2: having marijuana legalized next year? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, just briefly. <laughs> a great question. I get asked that a lot, quite honestly. I'm going to keep this as short an answer as I can and it's not trying to avoid the question. The reality is the ship has sailed. The federal government has said they're going to legalize it. We're waiting for more information as to what will that look like. From a policing perspective, our concern is uh, driving while impaired or driving while high. Because right now in Canada, we don't have a reliable test to determine if a person's high or not. alcohol we've got great science great technology that we can test for that so from a police perspective that's a big one the other part of it is the regulatory I'll call it regulatory pieces so not so much the marijuana like somebody rolls a joint but when you have the THC from marijuana being used in edibles I think it was medicine hap- got a bunch of gummy worms or some sort of gummy bear type candy that was high in THC to me that's going to be the bigger concern is those products that potentially could fall in the hands of kids accidentally <clears throat> That's, I think, where, and I don't know who, I really don't have the answer who that falls to. Does that fall to sort of food inspectors? Does that fall to, we don't know. So the policing community is much like everyone in this room. We're waiting for some leadership and guidance from different levels of government as to wh- how, what's this going to look like. Uh, we, we don't know, but I can tell you from the policing perspective, driving wall high is a big one. And then how who is going to monitor, regulate, and p- small p police, those non-marijuana cigarette things whether it be cookies brownies gummy worms because that's going to be a huge concern the other thing is talking to our colleagues in the united states uh is that i talked to friends of mine that are in colorado and they said when colorado legalized marijuana they weren't ready for all the things that happened like the spike in social services having to be engaged and they can't believe that we're going to roll it out nationally in one shot in Canada. Like, they just think you Canadians are nuts. But now you're really nuts when I talk to <laughs> when I talk to them. So uh, I wish I had better answers for you, but we're in a, we're sort of in a holding pattern, waiting for some direction. <clears> throat> 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 yeah, yeah.
5: Thank you. <clears throat> um, I always think of marijuana as a gateway drug. Um, if you could say something about that. But also, how much work is being done in schools to talk to children about the drug problem? Thank you. Sherry Mandel.
2: Uh, with, With respect to the gateway drug, I really don't want to get into that one because what my experience has been is if I take a position on that, there's enough research for and against. Uh, I will say I shared my childhood with you that I'm very black and white in my childhood. There was no gray. <clears throat> uh, I really don't have a comment on that. I'm not. There's enough research out there saying it is. There's enough research out there saying it is, and I don't know what I do know is there's a lot of research saying that marijuana, uh, as far as we you know, we've demonized cigarettes. We've demonized cigarettes. They're going to kill you. Lung cancer kills you. It drives our health costs up. Yet we're going to legalize marijuana that has no filters at all on it. And my understanding, and I'm not a doctor or medical profession, but the the black spots that you get on your lungs from marijuana are significantly uh, more uh, dense than what you would get from a tobacco cigarette. So that's a bit of a concern I have is... is is the impact long-term on our health care system uh, as far as lung damage and lung cancers and those types of things. Uh, with respect to the second part about the schools, uh, this start of this year I put a new sergeant in charge of our school resource officers and that was my marching order, is make sure we are getting the message to the schools, because quite often in the policing community we're always about five years behind the trend, and I'll use the good old D.A.R.E. Uh, programs, D.A.R.E. was designed during the Reagan War on Drugs era, but what we found is when you use that D.A.R.E. program in its original concept today, you're missing the mark. Our kids are growing up so fast that if we target them like we did in 1980 or 1990, we've missed the boat. They're exposed to this stuff through social media at a much younger age. So the marching orders to the Sergeant Reader were to make sure that our officers in the schools are communicating with the educators so there's a real awareness about the fentanyl issue, the opioid issue, so that we don't have uh, a tragedy in our schools with an overdose of drugs.
0: So we can't actually keep Chief Davis long today. So that will have to have been oh, our I'll last... Take, I'll take one more. One more? Okay. okay.
5: Th- thank you. Mary Shillington, thanks for your information and your humor. Uh, I'm going back a bit to Trevor Page's question about the number of calls you're getting that are not related to crime as such, but are more social issues. Uh, as a retired social worker, I'm interested in this. Um, the, so many of these, and I've seen things in the paper, about the mental health issues that you're dealing with, and that's where you're, you're your mediation and negotiation comes in, where you're talking with people. So what do you see as the solution to that, so that you, the police department doesn't have to deal with all those things?
2: So we're working with Alberta Health right now to get a mental health professional embedded with the police service. it will be a nurse trained in mental health. It's, it's, we're actually replicating. Calgary's been doing it for years. Uh, you look at some of the other big centers across Canada, they've been doing it for years, and they're finding tremendous success. Because I'll be quite honest, folks, as cops, we, from, from the day we walk in the door, we develop our own vernacular, our own vocabulary, uh, using silly things like B and E instead of saying break and enter, but we, we use our own vernacular. And so when we wind up having to deal with somebody with a mental health issue, when we take them to the emergency, the way we speak is evidence-based. We're looking, we always look at the evidence of an offense. Yet when you talk to a mental health professional, the words they want to hear in order to take them into their care are quite different. So when I talk to officers, and I'll use Hamilton because I'm very familiar with the Hamilton police. They've had me- mental health nurses embedded with them when the police officer is partnered with a mental health nurse dealing with a person having a mental health episode and they then take them to the emergency, when the cop conveys the message to the nurse, says, hey, here's here's what I have in the the policing world, and that nurse can then convey it in medical terms or mental health terms to the ER doctor, the person gets care. And I think that's success. So I think that the solution is we start being open in the policing community, it's happening, and it, the good news is it's happening, to have the respective professionals embedded with us that have the skills to address the issues, using the proper terminology, knowing what to look for, so that we can get the person to the right care.
0: Fabulous, thank you so much Chief Davis for being here today. thanks again everybody.